Hi, everyone. Welcome to Terror Talk. This is Shannon. Hello, this is Kathy. Hello. Today on the show, we are going to discuss some true crime, uh, specifically set at the holidays because it's December 23rd. <laughs> and we thought, what would be the best thing to talk about at holiday time? Let's talk about murder and mayhem. <laughs> so, <laughs> so today on the show, and you know, we're going to discuss some true crimes that happened around the holidays. But first, Kathy's going to break it down for us, like a little bit about why so many terrible things happen at the holidays within families, familicide, family annihilators, attachment, and some cases. So we're going to get to it all. Yeah, you know, if you uh, when I started looking up some of the cases that happened around this time, we see some really you know, yeah. high profile cases like John, John Benet Ramsey. And there, there are others. Um, and we've even talked on the show about Chris Watts and, and um, how he was perceived to be this, you know, dad of the year and their families were, their family was great. Obviously we found out there were things behind that that weren't true. But um, when we, when we think about familicide, which is the, the death or murder of an entire family, usually by one family member, and it's typically the the father or the patriarch of the family, although it can be the mother too. Um, you know, there are a lot of different things that go into um, why it takes place. And, in, you know, there's a study, which we're not going to go into in a lot of depth, we could probably do a whole episode on it about family killers are usually men and fit one of four distinct profiles. Mm -hmm. um, what we do know is the holidays are a time of cheer. Um, and with that comes a lot of expectations. So, you know, there's two different ways you can look at it. You can look at it as somebody who is wanting to annihilate and, and use the irony of that cheer and that happiness um, and choosing to destroy that is very intentional you know, so they come in at a time where it's supposed to be, you know, there's this expectation that everything's gonna be wonderful. I also believe that that can be used as a sleight of hand. It's like people are more vulnerable thinking nothing bad is going to happen and they're not really prepared. Not that we walk around prepared to be murdered, but I think that during the holidays, people's defenses can be down. We're not paying as much attention. There's an so assumption of safety. There's an assumption of safety. Yeah. So if we're talking about familicide, well, wow. I mean, no one's, no one's thinking that, you know, dad left the house four hours yesterday because he's planning to kill his whole family. Right. Okay. He's cutting down a Christmas tree or whatever. And then there's the other piece of this, which is, um, you know, it, it, it just tends to be a time where there's a lot of pressure, financial pressure. And so what, one of the things we do know about familicide is that one of the precursors is often that, you know, this is someone um, and this, this, there's a lot of social psychology around a man's responsibility to take care of his family and to be this, the breadwinner and, um, be able to provide. And when he cannot do that, um, then, you know, depending on how mentally unstable he is, is his only solution to take control over that situation. Basically, if, if I can't have you, nobody will and wipe out the entire family as a way of being able to wipe out that shame and sometimes even taking his own life. Yeah. I'm, I'm really reflecting on, you know, for our Patreon audience, we've been doing daily mini casts for um, our patrons and we just recorded a couple on narcissistic personality. And I'm, as you're speaking, I'm absolutely reflecting on the idea that, um, the expectations of the holidays. And if that relationship is already incredibly complex with, um, 
with domestic violence, with child abuse, with whatever also, uh, you know, might be going on in a dysfunctional family that, that ups the trauma quotient so high that those financial expectations, the, per, the dynamic expectations with like extra family coming in and what are they going to look at, you know, and that, and that shame is sparked. Right. If it happens to involve a narcissistic personality, mm-hmm. um, that externalizes with rage. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's a, a horrible, recipe for yeah, disaster. It's a horrible recipe. Yeah. I mean, and we look at, uh, you know, really like this study talks about how family annihilators have really received little attention as a separate category. Right. Uh, they're thrown in with sociopaths they are thrown in with narcissists. They're thrown in with psychopaths. They're thrown in with this, you know, right. Category that's already there. So we haven't really studied them much. I think with the attention to true crime mm-hmm. and what we're seeing now on 2020 specials and yeah, a lot all the more. shows that are coming out is we're really starting to see that that, that this has been a problem for a very long time. It's been a category that's been existent for a very long time and really now starting to hit the surface of true crime and we're seeing more of it, not because there's necessarily more of it. We're just starting to see more of it and get more exposure to it. So in almost every case, the perpetrator objectifies and feels a sense of ownership over the family, including feeling power over whether they live or die. Um, then we look at it from a social piece, which is the toxic masculinity and patriarchal ideals. So seeing the loss of any socialized masculine trait, so being the sole provider, not being able to provide for the family as a weakness, turning the shame onto the family. So this comes from a study, actually a, a graduate study, uh, Taylor, uh, I, I'm probably going to butcher the last name, Otout or Othout uh, from the University of Albany, who did a, a study called Family Annihilators, the Psychological Profiles of Murderous Fathers. And Taylor, I'm not sure Taylor's gender, so I'll say they, um, they really get into talking about this idea where, um, again, like I was just mentioning earlier, if, if I can't have you, nobody will. And their, their reason and their rationale and all of that stuff really gets dwindled down into, I cannot face the world with this shame, I'm going to take my entire family out. And since I am the patriarch and I, I can make that decision as to whether they, they should be able to live or die. So then Taylor breaks this down even further and talks about, um, the Medea complex, which is really a more of a female (laughs) oriented (laughs) story, but, um, you know, it's typically the mother, but it can be any parent desires to kill their own children to express vengeance It's rooted in Greek mythology and Jungian theory, driven by the desire for revenge on her partner by killing her own children. So it's, you know, the idea of the terrible mother. So if I can't have them, no one can. Um, But the majority of perpetrators are actually males between the age of 30 and 50. So I don't know if you wanted to add to any of that at all, but. Yeah, I mean, the Medea complex, you know, Greek mythology, Medea killed her children who were fathered by a Jason after he deserted her for a younger woman. Yeah. And so there was a lot of rage, as some people might be able to relate to. But there's a lot of other Medea stories, but Mm -hmm. it's... um, Well, I think it just also... also, Go ahead. The children are objects to be absolutely. used against the yeah absolutely i mean it's it's it really the media complex really talks about sort of the disturbed mother-child relationship mm-hmm. um and and jung called it the ter- the concept of the uh, terrible, terrible mother, mother in mm-hmm. his writing but you know it's got 
it's got all sorts of aspects to it. It's like betrayal, abandonment, vengeance. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just a lot of pieces to that. But yeah, so it's called the Medea Complex. So when we think about the root of, um, you know, how does someone get this way, right? And And there's so many different, you know, we're not going to get into the diagnoses of these people because it's really going to depend on the story um, and which true crime segment we're talking about. But if, you know, we, we on this show talk about everything from a psychological perspective. So if you go from an attachment perspective, meaning, you know, what attachment style did the, the perpetrator as a child have with his or her or their caregiver, primarily mom, we'll say in this situation. Um, if, if someone experiences a disorganized or ambivalent or neglectful attachment style, then basically the person who they are supposed to trust and see as safe also is somebody who they are terrified of. So this can really severely disrupt a healthy identity development, relationship to their environment, impoverished empathy, stable sense of self. So when, when stressors come in or relational pieces come in in their life, they're incredibly maladaptive in handling things from a healthy place, from a, a, a healthy attachment uh, place. So they're, the way that they're, they show up in their families is going to be incredibly um, um, maladaptive, problematic, and can be fatal, right? So, and this is not a causational thing. I'm not saying everybody who develops a disorganized attachment style becomes a killer. We're, I'm, what I'm saying is if you look at a profile of a killer, they're more likely going to be someone who has disorganized, ambivalent, or neglectful attachment styles. So, you know, what often we will see with people like this is they were exposed to domestic violence as children, emotional abuse, uh, which often threatens the concept of separateness from from their uh, initial caregiver. So they never really developed their own identity, sense of self. Um, and so, you know, everything is intergenerational. So we're adding not only do we have the current stressors of what's going on in their life, we also have to look at their psychological trajectory and their own identity development and how that plays a part in how they show up in relationships and how they react to stress and shame and all of these other things. Um, and what we do know about domestic violence and even disorganized forms of attachment is we, we see intergenerational trauma. So I don't know. Um, these are really, 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 unhealthy individuals who don't tolerate stress well, don't tolerate shame well. And when something like this comes into their life where they feel like their masculinity is threatened or their identity is threatened or their persona is threatened, this is a reaction to that. Yeah, I always take issue with the idea of we didn't know it was going to happen or the surprise that the media likes to register for people. Um and, and also professionals like to register for people or even just ancillary people in their lives, teachers or friends or family or um, people who don't even know them very well. Because you can imagine if you have those kinds of personality traits, you're not doing the bang up job in your relationships no. to begin with. No, you're not. And I'm not saying that people could predict that this would happen. Certainly professionals might be able to predict that this would happen, except the people that we're talking about are not seeking professional help. That's right. Um, their families might be though. Uh, but it's just always so interesting to me. It's like you describe, there's no shock and surprise that this stuff happens. Mm-hmm. Really? If you, there is, uh, what I'm saying is it's just like uh, the history, the buildup of this is just um, in so many ways so clear. 
It really is. Are you going to talk? I think so. There is a couple of cases to probably illustrate that how clear it was. <laughs> so there is a case from 2002. Yeah. Let me find it on here. So uh, called the, I think I'm pronouncing the last name right, the Hulaver murders mm-hmm. from Middleton, Pennsylvania. This guy. Yeah. Um, so he basically, not he basically, he did mm-hmm. murder his wife and two daughters. And then they had a nine month old little girl who survived. And this ended up happening on Christmas Eve. Mm-hmm. So, um, 2002, 2002. And I believe my understanding is that he was actually already kicked out of the house and been charged with a sex offense related to his daughter. Yeah. He was charged with multiple sexual offenses against two, both daughters when they were minors. Yeah. And he had an order of protection from, um, uh, she, uh, the, the mother in the situation had an order of protection from her husband Mm -hmm. so that he would be removed from the family home. So, right. Um, so all three of the women had been shot dead with a single shot from a small caliber weapon. Jean, the wife had been shot in the head, uh, found in the kitchen. So the police believe that she was just getting up in the morning on Christmas morning. Um, he fired a single shot. Um, they said it was about 4 a.m., so she was up pretty early. And then the second victim was his 20-year-old daughter who was shot on the top of her head. And then his other daughter was found lying across her bed with a single gunshot wound to her left eye. Yeah, so he had that restraining order, um, or she did, and uh, which barred him from owning or coming into contact with firearms. So, you know, he obviously got them illegally. Mm-hmm. And I think he snuck through the window or something weird he like went, that. He actually, <laughs> this is really sick. So to give you an idea, like he actually cut the phone lines and all the wires leading into the home. And then he forced his way inside through the garage. Mm. So, yeah. And without hesitation, what I was reading, because they can tell that from the blood splatter and everything. He, without hesitation, shot his wife. Yeah. According to the daughter, the Vic- Victoria, I think the oldest daughter, he, he had been molesting her mm-hmm. for years and she hoped that if she kept the secret, then he wouldn't molest Izzy, their other daughter. Um, and he was with his brother, you know, he was with his brother as brother was the accomplice. Yeah. Um, the driver. Yeah. They drove afterwards, I guess, and threw away the gun and. Yeah. Yeah. The brothers are back back in. There's a whole article on, on this. If you look it up, there's a lot of information. You know, when I first came across the story, I thought it was like, uh, this one is on, uh, it's called Criminal Discourse Podcast has an article called Ernest Hulaver Jr. Family Annihilator. Okay. And the I article's can... from January 20th, 2020. Great. Perfect. Now yeah. people can check it out. Yeah. Um, and it kind of walks through the different facts. Awesome. And parts of the case. So when I first fell across this case, I actually thought it was much older than it was, just the way that it's written. Mm. And to find that it, it's not even 20 years old. It's kind of crazy. I thought it was like from the seventies or something. Like, was that disturbing because of the yeah, way it was written? I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It just felt like, you know, when I think of like, those, are we ca- still doing this? When people are clipping wires and going through uh, to me, that's like so eighties. So seems like so yeah. 1984. Right. The other one, and I actually watched the movie, which I don't recommend at all. <laughs> it's so 
the the acting is so um Oh, it's one of those ones where they act out true events. They, yeah, and they have the the ages wrong too, so that the daughters in this are played. Maybe they did that on purpose. They're much older. Yeah, I'm sure it was, but then when you read the real story, it makes a big difference that the daughters were younger because these guys come in and murder the family, and these daughters are left. Right. What by was themselves. the name of the thing? Uh, it's called the Utah Cabin Murders. Okay, so this so, is a different case. This is a different case. Switching cases. Um, gotcha. So. This was, the, the, for, the story was first broadcast on December 10th, 2011. Um, just kind of give you a, a background in Oakley, Utah, when the, I think it's the Tide or Teed family mm-hmm. headed off uh, to spend a snowy Christmas at their remote family cabin. They had no idea what they would bring. Two sisters who survive a harrowing home invasion share the terrifying story in their first extended television interview. So what ends up happening is these two random guys, I think, who both had been in prison, come across this cabin and talk about a random killing Mm -hmm. because I don't think there was any direct motive. They didn't know the family or anything. They come in during the day Mm -hmm. and first they shoot the grandmother and the and the mother right in front of the girls. This is absolutely most people's home invasion nightmare. I mean, it really is like flip a coin. This happened to you. This is this. You have a better chance of winning the lottery. Well, and this is why these horror movies succeed the that are about family, you know, these, this kinds of happenings because it actually does happen in real life, even though it's quite rare. Ugh, it's horrible. Yeah. It was a home invasion. It was a robbery. It was a random, you know, maybe because it was desolate. They thought, well, no one's going to be around. Um, you know, the mom and the grandmother, at least the way they painted them in the movie and reading some of the stuff, they were very, um, strong and, mm-hmm. and, but you know, they, so they both get shot. The daughter's, the one daughter is there. The other daughter is out with the father. They get home from shopping and the guy, yeah. one of the robbers walks up to him and the father at first is like, thinks he's kind of kidding Who around. Is this? Yeah. Like nobody thinks that's going to happen. No. Pulls him in the house. And the next thing you know, he gets shot and now it's down to the two daughters. The two daughters end up surviving through this all. And it's just, it's grueling to watch the amount of torture over like a 24 hour period. One of the friends of the family actually comes around just to say hi. And he's like, where is everybody? Mm-hmm. And I think they end up shooting him like through the window. Cause okay. they, they're like in another, the gun is around the corner. They see him. Yeah. So they put the gun in a space just to get through the window and shoot him in the head. So just for some context, um, yeah. it, it was December 22nd, 1990. Okay. And the grandmother was 72 years old. Um, her daughter was 49. One of, the granddaughters or other daughters was 20. Um, and the other one was 16. Yeah. Yeah. And the way, you know, in the movie, one could definitely be 20, but they were, they looked more like they were about like 20 and 22. Mm-hmm. Um, there was no 16 year old in this at all, but. Um, and they literally arrived back at the cab in the middle of the day, 1230 in yeah, the afternoon. The like, middle of the amazing. afternoon, which is what makes this even creepier is it didn't happen at night. No, I mean, isolated in a sense with the, cu- with the cabin and such, but ugh. yeah, the movie's really bad. I mean, the, the, and <laughs> just to give a little context of the movie, they, and I don't want to laugh cause this is a true story. So I'm not laughing at at the story, at the story, but you know, after You're the, laughing at the movie, yes. After the, the wife gets shot and the husband looks over and sees her there. All of a sudden, they show this flashback of the the wife being alive. Oh, but it was like from a clip in the movie that they had already used. <laughs> and she's got her coffee and she's kind of like, 
like smiling, like really really cheesy. cheesy. And they're playing like this Hallmark music over it. And this would be the low budge. There's moments where you're not sure if you're watching a lifetime Hallmark Christmas movie or a slasher film. Which aren't even that bad, probably. No. The Hallmark movies probably aren't even that bad. But the music and stuff that they use, it like really confuses you what you're watching. It's And the acting is horrific. One of the daughters was better, was, was okay, but the... Even the burglars, the robbers, were painful to watch how overplayed and one-dimensional they were. Yeah, because these are two murderers. Um, who are aggressive and toxically masculine and, and, and you know, they just... Probably. They, but they play it very just surfaced yeah, and, yeah, that's painful. Um, but you want to talk about the real guys or... I don't really, I mean, they were, they I were, can tell, I, I yeah, go it. ahead. Yeah. Um, so Vaughn Taylor was 25 years old. He'd recently been paroled um, that October. So he'd only been out a, what, a couple months after serving time for aggravated burglary. So this was his de rigueur, as they say. His partner in crime was Edward de- Deli, spelled like deli meat, uh, 21 so really young, who also had been recently paroled in November, like a month prior, after serving a year, uh, five-year sentence for arson, actually. So the two had met in a halfway house. You know, you get paroled, and often, if you don't have anywhere else to go, you live in a a halfway house, is what they used to call them. (laughs) Um, Now it would be what supported living would be the PC term, something like that. Uh, And they had left, they had met there and then walked away from it, meaning they hadn't been staying there since, I guess, December 14th. And uh, we're on the run. Mm. Yeah. So that's who did it. It, it's exactly what you said, though, which is the everybody's worst nightmare is the ra- being in that random cabin, mm-hmm. you know, where 80 slashers. Yeah, the isolation horror. Yeah. You know, we're we're talking quite a bit about that on all the shows right now where we're talking about movies because this is the season, mm-hmm. that winter isolation horror. It's, it's, it's really what, you know, when we're talking about wintertime or true crime or fears, in winter, mm-hmm. it's really these stories. Mm-hmm. It's really th- this kind of thing happening where you're at your cabin in the woods or um, you're you're with the people you think you trust mm-hmm. and then and things get toppled on its side and you're either isolated physically or you're isolated mentally. Like you're describing conversation, you know, you're describing families that already have severe child abuse or domestic violence in them where there are people in that family, most likely the ones who died, but also the ones who committed the murders that including these two guys I just described who are ex cons, like they're all feeling isolated in their own minds, heads, hearts, souls, and also playing out these, um, horrible real life myths of, of isolation. Mm Mm-hmm. And so both physically, emotionally, psychologically isolated in at this time that our culture would like to preach to us is about family and wholesomeness and coming together. And that's absolutely like the dialectic of our culture, right? Totally. Is that these kinds of things are happening all the time and they get like what Kathy was saying in the research and then the literature is talking about how it gets so escalated and most of us in the industry know that domestic violence is off the charts around the holidays mm-hmm. and also when a woman is pregnant, by mm-hmm. the way. And so times that are supposed to be, yeah, vulnerable, mm-hmm. um, vulnerable to happiness. Yes. 
like celebration how messed up is that newness yeah vulnerable to happiness like these two guys go into this home this family is on this wonderful vacation in a cabin and they go into this home and just destroy it in the movie there's a scene where um they are they have the video on and they're going they're opening all the presents and making fun of all the presents and and i don't know why that part got me but it was like they were mocking you know these gifts were meant something to the family members and they were mocking these gifts and they were opening them like they were theirs it was just so intrusive yeah the only thing i can compare it to is i had someone break into my car once and ransacked and went through things and i just that violating feeling of like you went through my stuff Mm -hmm. and it meant nothing to you and you took things that meant something to me that you just trashed Mm -hmm. and i'm watching this scene where he's like kind of mocking he's like oh look at this and he's opening all of their gifts like he's just so entitled to this intrusion it made me sick it was like the only part of the movie that i actually had like a, a real emotional response because it was that yeah that in entitled intrusive humiliating exposing just yeah it was awful it's the feeling of a rape yeah is is what that you know when we watch that in on film is mm-hmm. when uh or home invasion also gives that same feeling when we watch horror with home invasion or with um sexual assault is that total and i think you know it you could say it's just christmas presents and we obviously entirely realize that yeah, it's a pair of socks but it's <laughs> but it's the spectrum of that feeling right you know maybe them ripping into presence is at one end of the spectrum and being raped or shot or killed or tortured in your home is the other end of the spectrum and then everything in between. But yeah, it's that feeling of violation and even having your car ripped off or your home ripped off and no one is hurt and it's only stuff, but it's a violation because the stuff meant something to you and not something. And you were and in someone my else. car and you touched my stuff. And you, you were went- able to invade me. Yes. And so like we can extrapolate that like I was doing before on a very small personal level of you're having a conversation with someone in therapy and you feel like that therapist oversteps and you feel invaded emotionally all the way to home invasion in the physical world where you are literally invaded physically. So like, or a sexual assault where you're invaded physically. So yeah, it's, um, I think those themes run through the horror movies that we talk about so viscerally. And I think maybe it's one of the reasons why home invasion, uh, any horror film that has exploitive rape in it, um, those two genres, themes, tropes, whatever the hell you want to call them. I think because of these true crime type of stories and our very real fears around things happening like that, I think it's one of the reasons why those particular kinds of movies are not my favorite. Yeah, that intrusiveness, that violation. Very difficult to tolerate for me. And I think for a lot of people, they aren't aren't the sort of everyday tropes in the horror industry. There's certainly plenty of them, mm-hmm. but they're they're not the everyday ones. I think they're two that hit very close to home. Yeah, yeah. You know, this article I lost it. I had it pulled up. Let me see if I can find it again. But talking about um, family annihilators and it becoming uh, on our radar more. Is that the one by Taylor? Uh, no, this is um, 
Let's see. Let's see if I can find it again. Uh, the psychology behind familicide. So this is a, an article. Uh, it's an online article by CT Post. It's a news article. And they, they just really kind of get into, well, there were two. That was one. Let me see. Because there's one that talks about it being, um, yeah, here it is. Here's the other one um, by Wired. Okay. Family killers are usually men and fit one of four distinct profiles is oh, the name yeah. of it. And um, probably getting the research from that article you were talking about. Yeah. yeah. So, so, you know, the fact that it's becoming, we're, we're talking about it more. Yeah. Um, and they go into the four different types. You know, he says examining all the cases led to the identification of four distinct characteristics that drove the murder, well, which helps to dismantle the common myth that family killings are motivated either by revenge or altruism. You want to talk about the four types? Um, yeah. So there's there's self righteous killers mm-hmm. hold the mother responsible for the breakdown of the family. Okay. Uh, disappointed killers believe their family has let them down, and the killing could be sparked by something like children not choosing to follow religious customs. Uh, anomic killers see the family as a symbol of their own economic success, but if they suffer some kind of economic failure, bankruptcy, for example, the family no longer serves this function. And paranoid killers are often motivated by a desire to protect their family from a perceived threat, such as having children taken away by social services. So self-righteous, disappointed, anomic, and paranoid. Hmm. Is there any, I mean, what's your professional experience with this type of occurrence? Did you, have you or did you treat anybody who had committed this type of murder in your practice? I, I treated people who were, who had either killed or harmed family members, but in a state of psychosis. So, so people found out guilty by reason of insanity. Mm -hmm. So that might have the closest would be the paranoid. Oh God. But this is coming from a, a paranoid place of the person being not so much psychotic as delusional. I was dealing more with people who were in the midst of psychosis Mm -hmm. This is, I think this almost comes from like um, a, a paranoid narcissistic yeah. thing. Yeah. Cause even the two, the two cases that you brought forward are incredibly different. Yeah. Right? One is a, a, a familicide situation from what I could tell from what you were saying. Um, and the other is uh, straight criminal. Uh, I mean, I don't know the mental health of those men, but. Yeah, I mean, they were ex-cons. Yeah, you know, they didn't know the family. There was no... Looking to rob a house. Rhyme or reason, right? right. At least the way it's presented. And then no if, rhyme or reason. If we look at John Benet and Ramsey, if, if we go with the theory that it was the mother or father or whatever, like, you know, how do how are we profiling them if we look at these four? Are we looking at the mm-hmm. um, disappointed or anomic killers or seeing the family as a symbol of their own economic success? I don't... I know you've done more research on John Benet, but... Was there anything that you remember from what would have given the parents a motive? <laughs> that was the really difficult thing, I think, about that case. Of, of how they were even suspects? Yeah, yeah. It was really difficult because it's like, you know, there's lots of theories and lots of, I mean, there's lots of people that believe that, you know, they were incredibly narcissistic and sociopathic and they were playing it all off and so successful, but this is but not what? like, but yeah, that, that, that's the thing. I, I think that was where, that was where it became so, it, it becomes so difficult to look at that 
case and what and I think why 450,000 people have <laughs> talked about it and done podcasts and books and I mean, movie of the weeks on it is because they're the motive for that. Like what was there? Does there need to be, of course, but our criminal justice system says that there does. And so yeah, I, I mean, I think um and mother, the mother often got a lot of that. <laughs> Got a lot of that. Uh, what was the story? It was the, oh, the okay. So for me, it matches more like how I see, and this is just my theory, is, yeah. is there more of like a Lindbergh thing happening where oh. the father had some unfinished business with someone and the child was used some, as ransom or, you know what I mean? Yeah. That I to mean, me is more plausible. Yeah, no, I understand. Because so much of the time when we watch the true crime stories that, you know, happened 40 years ago, uh, there's so much information and we know so much about it. Um, and, and so we can come up with all of these theories, but it's like, I think in, in, uh, for lack of a, I think in the murders that we don't look at as a society, the ones that we're not talking about ever often, because the reason why we never hear about them is because they're never solved and they're not, um, exciting or sensationalistic in nature. And, Nobody could come up with why it happened. Right. I think is one of the big things. And so to have such a sensation, such sensational murders be unsolved, which we talk a lot about on the show, but also not being able to figure out a motive. I mean, right. I mean, there, there would be, as far as we know, there wasn't any motive. Yeah. A lot of times there's like a lot of proof and no motive or no, no proof and a lot of motive, you know, right. like it's like, I think I said that correctly, but like it's one or the other. The last part of this article, just to throw this in there, because I feel it's important and we make this distinction a lot is this article specifically stated, it's important to make the research about male family annihilators available this month as men are most likely to commit these acts. The next step is to do further research into what motivated the 12 women who killed members of their family, because they were saying, we don't simply want to fit the women into these four categories we've identified for men. We want to see what differences there are rather than just simply go, Oh, look, this woman fits this male pattern. So, right. you know, there's, and we we even talk about this, how personality disorders, narcissism, sociopathy manifest differently mm -hmm. between men and women. So it'd be interesting to hear this same article yeah. and what categories do they find for women? That would be interesting. I don't, it might not exist yet. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Areas for further research. <laughs> for sure. Um, for your students. Yeah. <laughs> if they're listening, do it. Do the do those cases. Yeah. Um, and also I think recently there's been some new John Vinay stuff that's come out too that I'm not really familiar with. So I don't know. Maybe they nailed it down. Maybe they exonerated. I mean, nothing linked their the parents to the crime. Right. Which was the very difficult piece of that. Right. Um right. So True crime at the holidays, there's quite a bit of it. I know that um, one of my thoughts was that uh, when we were researching for this show, I I found a lot of cases. And the what you're talking about in the research really bears that out, is that there are... I never really... I have to say, I, certainly with, with treating clients, I, I think about how the holidays impact that. And when I have used um, worked with forensic populations and mostly with their families and kids. Now it's like, it's a very intense, stressful time and financial time. So I don't know why when I was re researching this sort of on the interwebs, 
about it, how, I was like, wow, so many of the cases that I already knew, Lacey Peterson, John Bonet, et cetera, like happened around the holidays. And I was surprised mm-hmm. by that. So what happened for me is I saw so many cases. Um, and I thought like maybe, maybe for Patreon or something, I'll do little 10 minute or 12 yeah. minute chunks on a bunch of the cases that I found. Cause I ton. thought they were really, yeah, yeah. I thought that was really interesting. I know you narrowed it down to a couple and I appreciate that you did that because both the two cases were actually quite different, which I think is mm-hmm. also really interesting. Um, but yeah, I was thinking, I don't know, perhaps for Patreon, I'll do some little mini casts on a couple, few of the different, Mm-hmm. cases that i found and and in future we can do some together too because there's so many yeah oh my goodness i couldn't believe it but thank you guys for listening um so again this is just a smattering of what uh no pun intended of what can happen mm-hmm. over the holidays so happy holidays <laughs> And don't we'll, get slayed please do not get slayed have all Unless of your it's like sl- santa's i was gonna say have all your slaying be in the movies um tune back in on friday for our christmas day shrink chat where we will be talking all the christmas movies and we thank you so much for listening this is Terror talk my name is shannon and i'm kathy sleep safe everyone We hope you enjoyed this episode of Terror Talk. Please check out our Patreon page, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We'd love to engage with you as part of our community. Please take a moment to leave us a comment on any of our social media. Thank you so much for listening. And once again, sleep safe.